This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today we're going to discuss, I think, what is the most important issue of our time, uh, the mental health of uh, citizens of all kinds uh, after more than a year and a half of COVID and recent evidence of bad news of a new variant of COVID that's leading to an increase uh, in infections and even in deaths for the unvaccinated. Um, and uh, the effect this has had over a year and a half on the mental health of uh, children, of citizens, uh, of people of all different backgrounds. We're joined by a good friend and a highly regarded scholar and teacher who I think uh, has done more to work on these issues and has the best background to address them of anyone I know. Uh, he was on our podcast at the beginning of the COVID uh, quarantine, and he's now joining us again uh, to give us his insights on what we've seen over the last year and a half and where we're going. This is Steven Sonnenberg. Um, Steve Sonnenberg is a psychiatrist and medical humanities and ethics scholar. He serves as professor and associate chair for education in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Ardell Medical School. He also holds the Paul Woodruff Professorship for Excellence in Undergraduate Studies in the School of Undergraduate Studies, and, and uh, bearing that chair is, is a testament to uh, Steve's uh, incredible achievements as a teacher. He chairs the faculty panel of the Bridging Disciplines Program uh, titled Patients, Practitioners, and Cultures of Care. The program is designed to prepare pre-healthcare undergraduates with the tools they will later need as providers to create a healthcare system where health is a human right and structural disparities in care are eliminated. So you get a sense of uh, Steve's ambition, his achievement, and his idealism. Uh, Steve, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Steve Sonnenberg, we have, of course, Zachary Suri's thought-provoking poem. What is your um, poem title today, Zachary? In the Park with the Wide Fountain. Let's hear it. We are walking in the park with the wide fountain at dusk or dawn when miraculously the light lifts itself over the pavement stones. We are walking in the park with the wide fountain in circles around the base, as if propelled centrifugal in our barrenness, frail and emaciated at dawn or dusk when the trees hug the grass like a blanket long into the dark. We are walking in the park with the wide fountain, the water glistening in the dying or the rebirth of the sun. It too aches nostalgically, screams forth in a heartache so wonderfully beautiful, so unescapingly familiar. We are walking in the park with the wide fountain, and the light is ambiguous. We have just woken up, or we are so close to sleep. We circle the fountain with the rusting coins, flashing red beneath the water, an unspeakable violation. We are walking in the park with the wide fountain, something pulling us around and around, and we look inwards at the waterflies jumping around on the surface, at the blood-red coins beneath at the sun sinking or rising, at ourselves from the right angle side view of an oak tree. 
I love the imagery and the repetition in that, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is really about the the confusion uh, of living through a time when, when we don't know if this is the uh, beginning of something great, of, of, of a reopening, or, or, or the beginning of something terrible, uh, of even more tragedy. And also this sense that we're, we're, we're viewing all this in third person, that we've sort of lost our sense of self and personal agency. It's, it's a very interesting point that, that in a sense, we, we become disembodied viewers of our own suffering. Exactly. Steve, um, how, how do we understand, as, as you see it, the, the collective psychology of our society? I know that's a problematic term, but nonetheless, I think it's, it's important, right? What do you see as some of the main strands of um, mental health or lack of mental health today? Well, I want to pause for a second and say something about Zachary and his poetry. Zachary, I first heard you recite a poem almost three years ago. And uh, I'm awed by the maturity of your poetry. In in, uh, 2018, it it was wonderful. Uh, But there really is evidence of... uh, of maturation, of growth, of the depth and breadth of your thinking. And I I would say that the metaphors of uh, the poem uh, would also apply uh, as appropriate ways of describing your growth, at least as a poet. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I, I obviously don't have standing to make more comments than that. Um, And uh, as I think I've done in the past, uh, I'm going to begin my discussion uh, by uh, relating uh, what what I think is happening in our world to what I think is happening to you as a poet, because uh, the the poem does reflect both hope and despair. optimism and pessimism. And, um, and, and I do think that that is where we are uh, in our world. Um, I, I, I think when we spoke previously on this podcast about the pandemic, I was very concerned that when it ended, and I wasn't as explicit as I should have been because I should have said while it was going on and when it ended, as a, as a world, we would be psychologically traumatized, that there would be a pandemic, uh, not just of the physical effects of the virus, but of the traumatic effect of the pandemic itself, of the virus, of the effect of the virus on all of us, on the death that we would encounter, and 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 that that trauma uh, would really create um, widespread post-traumatic stress, and in numbers that uh, were that had never been encountered before. 
because this was a trauma that was going to affect the world. I also said that I was hopeful, that I thought that there was the possibility that experiencing that trauma would lead us to recognize that as human beings occupying a very, very small space in the universe, a, a very small planet in the universe where, where there was so much diversity, but we really had to define commonality, similarity, and mutual concern. And I was hopeful that that would occur. So I, I would I would actually urge listeners to locate that uh, that previous podcast and uh, and and listen to what I said because I was both pessimistic and optimistic. I thought we were going to suffer a lot, but the potential was there for us to grow as as a as a, as a, as human beings occupying a planet together as as brothers and sisters. Um, well, I think now, um, and I still am optimistic, I still am hopeful, but I don't think we have gotten to that place yet. And in fact, I think we are experiencing as as, as human beings occupying this very small planet, all connected to each other, uh, with uh, 99% of our DNA uh, the same, and with, with 99% of our capabilities uh, to think, to feel, to create, to be innovative, to be collaborative, and to be destructive, 99% the same. So I think we are experiencing worldwide post-traumatic stress disorder. But I would add to that that I think we're in a very particular phase of that disorder. And it's a phase that I don't think we have ever seen before in the way it is really worldwide and devastating. So I would like to uh, suggest to listeners uh, the book, The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. A wonderful, wonderful book. Becker was really uh, an amazing intellect, uh, an anthropologist, but uh, an interdisciplinary thinker. And uh, the book was written, it was finished in 1973. Becker died and it got the uh, Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction in 1974, posthumously. And, and what, what Becker observed was that all human beings considered death the catastrophe, the, the thing that terrified everybody. Uh, and and uh, really, uh, I would add to that, despite the comfort of certain faith systems, still uh, death uh, is, the, uh, is, is, is the ultimate uh, terror. And I believe that um, 
we, uh, as as a, a, a world society, um, we have really experienced that terror uh, in a form that is that we never have before, um, and um, I believe that. Uh, what we have experienced basically creates for all of us a sense of the apocalypse. That it, it hasn't quite occurred yet, but it's as if it had occurred. Uh, we envision it. We see it. We see the four horsemen galloping toward us. We, we are not really fully alive. We are in a certain sense, and, and it's, it's elusive, but we are living in a post-apocalyptic world. And, and Steve, th this is not something unique to our moment. As a historian, it seems to me we've had these other post-apocalyptic moments in our past. Uh, in, in memoirs and oral histories, that I've uh, read, you, you you have that description often from people who lived through the Great Depression and World War II. Um, other societies have gone through this in different moments as well. Um, what do we know about, I'm sure this is where you were going in your dis discussion anyway, what do we know about how people react in post-apocalyptic settings as you've described this one? Well, I actually would want to focus on what I'm observing right now. Um, and I'm going to I'm going to defer to you uh, to uh, fill in some of the blanks. But um, one uh, description uh, of uh, the ap apocalyptic experience would be uh, Sartre's "The Plague," um, uh, and and obviously there are others, um, but. I'm trying to understand uh, the decisions that are being made by people in power and the decisions that are being made by everyday people who have uh, perhaps very limited power, but some power over their own decision making. So and I I'm, think Steve, I think Steve, you meant Camus the plague. Just, just to, uh, no, I'm sorry, I did, I did mean Camus the plague. No, excuse me, Albert Camus. It's a, it's a, a wonderful uh, discussion of the plague, and it uses the plague as a metaphor for the um, rise of fascism, also in France. And, and yeah, elsewhere. yeah. Sorry, sorry, Steve, to interrupt. No, 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 no. I, 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 I apologize. I don't know why I was uh, confused about that. Um, what I'm observing is that people don't want to mask. People don't want to um, get vaccinated. People in positions of power are mandating uh, that school systems can't ask people to or insist that students and teachers mask, that municipalities can't mandate masking, that we can't more than encourage, but mandate 
vaccinations, except, uh, of course, there would always be appropriate medical exceptions to that. But, um, but in a world, I believe, that was not denying denying the very experience we're having, which is being, in effect, scared out of our lives and not really feeling fully alive in the sense that when you feel alive, you you look forward, you're optimistic, uh, you you have hope, you have dreams, you have plans. Uh, it's, It's as if all of that is gone and and all we can do is pretend that it's not gone and that everything's fine and that in fact uh, we don't have to worry about vaccinations we don't have to worry about masks we don't have to worry about death um, and in in Camus the plague um, at a certain point, the culture uh, that is described actually becomes uh, 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 enters this phase of, of of a kind of casual acceptance and denial, uh, and uh, I, I think that we have to get past this. Because if we don't, if we don't get past this, we can't really properly grieve what has happened and then begin to work together in a way to um, heal the wounds of the trauma. I mean, one of the one of the one of the things that we need to be able to do is acknowledge how traumatized we are and go about a process of grieving and healing rather than denial. And Steve, uh, is the denial that you're describing, which is so frustrating and so inexplicable to many of us, is that a reaction to a feeling of helplessness? Uh, There's nothing we can do anyway to keep ourselves safe, so we might as well just eliminate all of the barriers to behavior? Is that, is that really what you're describing? I, I, I think that's a good question. I think that's, that's putting it very well. Yes, I think, I, I think we are um, denying uh, how help... I, I, I think we, we are feeling helpless, and, uh, and that is a, a part of the effect of the trauma. And it deprives us of the opportunity to recognize, first of all, that we're feeling helpless and that we, uh, we uh, aren't able to process that. Because I think if we do process that, if we do grieve, if we do acknowledge the sense of helplessness, we can actually get past that and begin as... as uh, a worldwide collectivity of people, we can begin to employ not not not, not only introspection, which is very important, but also uh, intellect in in more explicit ways, 
to recognize that there is a great deal that we can do. Uh, th- there's, there is no question but that, the, the, to, to be very explicit, the simple act of masking, uh, masking is not uh, 25th century science. Uh, it's, 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 it, 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 it probably, uh, th- there are some archaeologists who could uh, tell me uh, when the first mask was observed, but I'm sure it was thousands of years ago. Um, I mean, intuitively, I think it's it, people recognize that if 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 they can mask. Um, I, I I apologize uh, on on my computer. Uh, certain times it rings. That just happened. no worries. Um, it, it, I did want to. Oh, no, I, I'm just going to say. I think I think if 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 we recognized that we actually had tools and, and we weren't totally helpless, we would leave this post-apocalyptic state of mind and, and think in more modern scientific ways. And also uh, a part of that would be modern psychological ways and recognize the importance of grieving, the importance of introspection, and the importance of recognizing what we can do uh, to help ourselves. And, and, and a lot of that would include a- empathetic behavior and thinking on the part of many people to embrace others in a way that would be healing. And that was what I had, that is what I had hoped for in, uh, in the first time we discussed this uh, early in the pandemic. I, I did want to touch on this uh, phrase you used world collective, because I think part of what you're saying is that in a sense, we've become more insular as individuals. Yet at the same time, I do think, and I've noticed this with my peers at least, that we've become more connected as a world, that we've sort of lost the sense of of national fervor, if you will, that we've become, that the suffering has in some ways brought us together. Do you think we've become more insular or have we become more international? Well, I'm... What you just said, uh, Zachary, uh, is a cause for optimism. Uh, uh, I'm I'm delighted to hear you say that. Um, It is not what um, I have encountered um, in, let's say, uh, recent months. And, you know, actually... uh, you know, I haven't been teaching since May, and my interaction with younger people is relatively limited. Um, I, I'm not a child psychiatrist. Uh, uh, I'm not in the. I haven't been in the classroom uh, for three months. That's 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 a long time, and. Uh, <laughs> I actually am encouraged to hear you say what you say. Um, it, it, it leads me to believe that the optimism that I expressed when we spoke about this in the, at the beginning of the pandemic um, uh, was, um, was, was not unrealistic, uh, that there was cause for optimism. I'm delighted to hear that um, you say that about young people, uh, about your peers. 
Steve, do you see um, among medical professionals, do you see the despair that you're describing? You know, um, I think I think there are very committed people who maintain optimism. And I, I have to say, uh, I, I'm, I'm one of them. I mean, I'm not totally pessimistic. Um, I, do, I do imagine that if people hear the message that I'm offering in, in, right now in this conversation, that it, it could lead people to uh, take certain kinds of steps to practice introspection, to practice empathy, um, to be empathic for themselves, uh, and eventually to I- engage in what grieving might be necessary and repair uh, a sense of profound pessimism, uh, a post-apocalyptic outlook. Uh, I also think that that we if, if people in power listen to what I and others are saying, that too, there, there could be shifts as well. Um, I, I think the best example of uh, optimism is uh, Dr. Tony Fauci, uh, who yes. has really been on the receiving end of a barrage of, of, mis, of, of abuse and mistreatment uh, and, and, and still keeps uh, preaching the, the gospel of healing. Um, and and I, I think that uh, there, I, I have not done a, a focused study of my peers. Uh, I, I suspect that there is a, a, a range of, of uh, a feeling about uh, optimism versus pessimism, uh, a sense of despair versus a sense of optimism. Um, I, I also think as a group, healthcare providers have risen to this occasion. Absolutely. And, and in that sense, I would infer uh, a, a, certain, a certain hopefulness. R- remember, um, uh, healthcare providers, in, in the course of their training, encounter aging, deterioration, and death all the time. I mean, that is very much a part of the life of, of a healer. Um, we, we, we heal, but we also help people at the end of life. We practice palliative care. We uh, engage in hospice care. Um, I, I, I don't feel that I can speak definitively. Uh, I, I certainly think that Many, many uh, people uh, uh, in in healthcare are optimistic. Uh, I also think uh, probably um, many many are pessimistic. But but I, I do think that uh, that as healthcare providers, we have a special place in society that empowers us 
to be more optimistic. Um, so yes, I think that uh, I think there are segments of the, the culture where people are more optimistic. This might be a question for both of you, but but one thing that I think might be might have a very significant psychological effect on our society in particular is that we've spent really the last twenty years since nine eleven. Worried about the, uh, the the threat from without, and and we've become in many ways a very militarized society. And then to see to see in many ways our entire lives crumble from within, from a disease, and 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 from I, I guess you could say an aspect that we wouldn't that, that didn't seem threatening to us. That seems to me like that must have had a, a a deeply psychological effect. And 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 I I think that that might have an influence on how we conduct foreign policy and and military policy in the future. Well, I think, Zachary, it certainly uh, shatters the invincibility myths that we carry around of ourselves, right? That we, we tell exactly. ourselves, um, you know, because we're well-educated or because we're um, tall and strong or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're men, right? We think that um, somehow we're invincible. And, and I think what you're describing is how that's been shattered. Uh, Steve, I'm sure you have some reflections on this. Well... I'm thinking about nuclear deterrence uh, and uh, mutually assured destruction uh, when, when Zachary uh, brings up uh, our history, our military history. Uh, obviously, um, there was a time when, um, and, and I can, this goes back to my own childhood, um, I was born in 1940. Um, I remember uh, atomic bomb drills in school when I was in, I don't know, maybe uh, the third grade and uh, the fourth grade, and perhaps even, even on into high school. Um, we would, uh, we, we would, we were taught to uh, crouch under our desks uh, because of the threat of a nuclear weapon. Right, duck and cover, as it was called. Uh, I, I, did, I did remember the phrase, but, uh, well, you know, uh, in a way, and I got very interested in studying nuclear deterrence um, uh, uh, and actually worked with people at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And I, I always felt that the policy of deterrence and, uh, was very fragile. Um, I, I understood uh, the, the protagonists, but I, I always felt that it relied on a certain view of human rationality. Fortunately, uh, so far, my concerns uh, have, have not been proven right. I mean, we have not had a nuclear disaster. But um, in a lot of ways, uh, and, and, and I, I'm going to speculate here, and I want, I want any, every listener to know that this is, this is just a, a speculation. It may be that the kind of post-apocalyptic thinking that I think is at work today, um, 
is um, is um, related to uh, an ongoing underlying fear of world destruction that goes back to the Second World War and the dropping of the atomic bomb bombs on Japan. Um, now, th this is an idea that um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just speculating now. It's something I want to think a lot more about. I think anybody who's listening to this would have, have to think a lot more about it. Right. But, but I'm not, I, but, but Zachary, your question um, suggests that, um, that and, and, and it suggests that your generation feels a certain kind of comfort that the threat from without was uh, under control. And now we have this threat from within, this, this virus that attacks our bodies inside, and that that threat from within is, is different and is overwhelming. And I'm, I'm not sure if um, the, the, the nuclear threat and the viral threat aren't part of the, the, the same terror that people have of death. Right. I agree with you, Steve. I think there is something similar, the sense of helplessness and the sense of um, doom that can lead people into all different kinds of, uh, I think, psychoses of, of one form or another. What should people do? What should listeners do, Steve, if, if, if they're feeling some of this themselves, if they're feeling a loss of control, if they're feeling a sense uh, of personal peril? Um, and of course, some of that is rooted in, in reality, um, but it can also produce a lot of self-damaging behaviors, right? So what, what should people do? How should they confront this in their own lives? Well, one of the things that I said, again, the, the first time we discussed this, um, was that uh, we really needed to uh, practice empathy with each other's. Uh, and in a sense, we needed to all try to become uh, indigenous mental health workers that uh, we needed to turn to clergy, that we needed to turn to the thoughtful, wise people we know to uh, discuss these issues, to grieve, to mourn, uh, and, and to try to develop uh, a more realistic sense of hope uh, in the face of very, very challenging situations. And also, as part of that hope, to practice uh, uh, ways of living that actually could help us deal with these terrible, terrible threats. And, um, and I, 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 I really believe that all of us have a potential capacity to heal each other and heal ourselves in community. And if we really put our minds to being uh, members of a healing community, I, I think we would, we would move forward. Now, I also think that we have uh, 
the potential here to uh, benefit to get benefit from counseling uh, from professionals. I, I mean, we have a large professional community of mental health counselors, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, counselors, and I sir, and and I and I think very importantly, uh, clergy. Uh, most of whom have had some training in counseling and, and many of whom are very interested in performing that function. Uh, so I, I do think we need to uh, try to uh, discuss these issues with, with thoughtful, wise people who can really help us. And, and again, I think if we add to that practicing measures that really will protect us, uh, I think we can develop at least some sense, some real sense of agency. Uh, we are not totally helpless. So just a, as a final question to, to push on that a little bit, because I think it's such helpful advice you're giving. Um, can, you, can you tell us or give us an example of what a healing community looks like in this case, or one you've been a part of or seen in, in a in a different context. But nonetheless, I, I feel, Steve, sometimes that because our society is so um, partisan now and so um, in such an attack mode, that some people really don't know what a healing community looks like. <laughs> they they haven't seen it, or, or if they have, they forget. And and so, how can we as humanists? describe that, help people to imagine that uh, in their lives? Well, I, 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 uh, what comes to mind are the classes I taught last academic year. Um, and of course, uh, uh, what I was teaching was medical humanities and medical ethics, mostly to college freshmen. And I changed my course, which, which had been prior to the pandemic, a, a, a general course in uh, medical humanities and ethics, where I tried to convey the importance of studying the humanities for the development of future healthcare providers and the importance of, of uh, focusing on ethics. But I changed it. Uh, to focus very specifically on the pandemic and what the pandemic was teaching us. Um, so we uh, began, for example, the course, listening to Martin Luther King's speech, I Have a Dream speech. Um, and um, we talked about Black Lives Matter, we talked about Brown Lives Matter, we talked about Asian American Lives Matter, uh, we, we talked uh, uh, about uh, every aspect of disadvantage that the pandemic was bringing into focus. And we talked about that. And in the last fall, I had 200 students in the class. And it became very, very clear that we came together as a community and we were doing it on Zoom. We, weren't, we, we didn't have the advantage of being in the same place at the same time. And the student response, uh, and because we do have course instructor surveys, I actually have a very good idea of the student response. And it was extremely positive. Um, we, we did some physical exercises. 
for example, we were on 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 the Zoom screen where we had 200 little squares of uh, of, of faces, and uh, we we engaged in the practice of reaching out through the space, through the squares. And of course, we were using our imaginations, but we all held hands and we actually sang together um, as a group of 200 people. We actually sang the Beatles all together now. We worked in very, very concrete ways to create a sense of togetherness, of connection and community. Now, I think this can happen in religious communities. I think it can happen in homeowners associations, uh, in, in, in uh, for example, in condominiums like where I live. Um, I think it can happen uh, in, uh, uh, in departments. Uh, I think it can happen in offices. Uh, it, 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 it takes a certain uh, willingness to be open and sharing and vulnerable uh, and express vulnerability. But I think in the end, we come out as stronger communities. And, you know, ultimately, it is my hope that uh, as, we, as we move forward in the world, that we actually will do that. Now, I, I can give you a specific example from uh, another time. After the Vietnam War, Vietnam veterans felt very isolated, very alone, very misunderstood. Well, I was a I was I am a Vietnam era veteran. I was a psychiatrist at the time, and I became involved in the development of the veterans centers and in the veterans support groups that were being created in those centers. And veterans were coming together uh, and basically, in a sense, metaphorically, and sometimes very physically holding hands and sharing their experiences. And that was healing. So I think we have models of healing. Other models of healing, um, uh, support groups um, like Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, in those groups, people come together, they open themselves up, they share, they express their vulnerability, and they gain a sense of stability and support. So we do have models that do work. Uh, and um, and I, I, I think we, we really need to do that. Um, and, and I think that when leaders... Uh, don't express that kind of vulnerability, but rather uh, uh, put forth an image of toughness. That comes across as insensitivity. It, it discourages an expression of vulnerability. It discourages uh, the formation of groups in, in our culture where, where, where people really can empathize with themselves and with each other. And I, by the way, I've mentioned empathy with the self, and that's, that's an elusive con, uh, concept. Empathy, empathy begins with being able to, to, to look inward and empathize with what one is going through. That 
can be that is built on when people can empathize with others. And, and I, I, I understand that this may sound uh, very even very fanciful, uh, but I, I can tell you as a mental health professional uh, and as a teacher that it isn't. And, uh, and of course, I, by the way, I'm very optimistic uh, when, Zachary, when you suggest that your generation uh, is more optimistic. I, I do think the students I worked with last year, they, gave, they really gave me a lot of very positive feedback, that they were experiencing a sense of community. So uh, I, I am hopeful. I, I share that, Steve, but I can't help but ask one more question. Um, what do we do with the people who, in reaction to the sense of vulnerability that you described so well, instead of revealing their vulnerability and holding hands and reaching out, uh, as we all know is healthier, what do we do with those whose reaction is just the opposite, is to lash out? to um, condemn others. Um, th th there's no doubt that much of the Trump phenomenon is driven by a sense of vulnerability among those who behave that way. And, and so what do we do when, when these moments are encouraging not just the healing reaction, but the opposite? How do we, how do we connect with those people? How, how do we bring them into our circle? Well, I have two heroes. And uh, I've already uh, told you basically that one of them is Martin Luther King, uh, because we started my courses, uh, uh, my, my medical humanities courses, uh, which were focused on the pandemic. Um, and uh, we started it listening, literally listening to the I Have a Dream speech. Um, and I shared with my students that I was in Washington. I was at that speech. I was standing there hearing it and that it really changed my life. Well, Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi are my heroes. And I think they have much to say. And they have much to say about really reaching out in a loving way and in a kind way and in a patient way. And not in an arrogant way. Uh, I mean, I do not, I think these were two human beings who really mastered the art of uh, eliminating arrogance from their personalities. I, I really think they did that. Now, now uh, it may be that people who've studied them more carefully than I have would disagree, but I think, I think they mastered the art of being humble and being caring and loving and giving. And I think, I think we have to try to do that. And that's not easy, but I think, I really think, and I don't, I don't think th that, that means not being patronizing, not being arrogant, not being condescending, and, and being willing to put yourself forward and experience suffering if necessary but not giving up and, and not lashing back, but really uh, practicing in a very benign way a willingness to be an example of humility uh, and, and uh, an active creator of community. And I certainly believe that Gandhi and, and King uh, were uh, people who embodied all of that. And uh, uh, 
I, I mean, I think they should be our models. It's a great answer and, and resonates with one of, the, one of our themes in the podcast each week, which is, of course, that there are historical inspirations for us and that by studying the lives of others, uh, we can gain a new perspective on our own lives. Um, Zachary, to close us out here, does, does this uh, description that, that Steve offers, does, is it helpful? I mean, because your generation, one of the great markers of your generation is that you want to call out injustice. Uh, more of your generation has been involved in peaceful protests against racism than even the civil rights generation of the 1960s. I mean, the, the, these are issues you care deeply about, not just you, your generation, but by all measures. And, and that's good. You care about the environment. You want to call out people who are destroying our environment. But at the same time, Steve is saying you have to reach out, that you have to heal. Uh, how do you think about that as someone struggling with these issues? I think it's tempting often to sort of uh, like put it down to the generational divide um, between generations, but I think it's much more than that. I think it's sort of this, again, this sort of feeling of being left behind, of being left out of these institutions that, 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 that younger people are benefiting from, and, and some young people feel this as well. And so I think that it's important for, for young people to, to, to sort of recognize that we have to call out injustice, that injustice is often a function of insecurity on the, on the part of the oppressor, and that for us to address injustice, we have to also be able to recognize the humanity in the oppressor or in those who would not, who, who would not protect others and cannot empathize with others. So, so you want to build humanity, this is Steve's point, and exactly. you think you can across good and bad actors. Right. And, and, and the way I think about it, I, I, I don't know if my generation has succeeded in doing this or not, but I, the way I think about it is that we need to be able to, um, to fight for, for what we believe is right, but at the same time to be able to see the humanity in everyone and to be able to, to see the potential fighter of injustice in every person. Gosh, that's that's hard for me to do. I have trouble seeing the humanity in in the Donald Trumps of the world, but that's just that's just who I am. Uh, Steve, I want to give you the last word here. I, I don't have anything more to say. Uh, I, I always appreciate the opportunity to uh, participate in these podcasts. They're always learning experiences for me, um, and uh, I, I hope uh, what I had to say is uh, helpful to people who listen to the podcast. It's, it's uh, super helpful, Steve. I think you've offered us, uh, first of all, a, a way to uh, put into words some of what many of us are feeling. And, and people are probably feeling what you described, this post-apocalyptic moment uh, in, in different ways. But I think there's a little bit of it in many people. And being able to name the problem or name the condition is, is so important. You can't really address it until you can can name it and i think you've given us a number of pathways forward uh not solutions right they're, they're they're these aren't issues that get resolved these are issues that get addressed and we hope to make progress with in an honest way and and the difficulties of our moment can indeed become opportunities for growth as you said and and that's i think what what makes all of us so optimistic especially those of us who work with young 
young people and those who uh, have the opportunity to talk to people as, as we do on this podcast uh, every week. So thank you so much for joining us, Steve uh, Sonnenberg. Uh, Steve referred a few times to the prior podcasts he joined us for. Just for those of you who want more of Steve Sonnenberg and can't get enough, I'm included in that fan club. Uh, he was on our episode 91 in uh, April of 2020, just at the start of the pandemic, or what we thought was the start of the pandemic. And then he also joined us uh, in 2018, episode 18, where he talked about uh, healthcare policy. That also is very relevant. Uh, and many of the things he said then were prescient, even though he might not have known it at the time. <laughs> so thank you again, Steve, for joining well, us. Well, always, it really is always a learning experience and uh, and a privilege to, uh, uh, to work with... Uh, one of one of the great father-son teams uh, that I've ever encountered, <laughs> the uh, Z- Zachary and Jeremy Surrey. Uh, well, Zachary, thank you for letting me be on your team <laughs> and for sharing your 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 poetry with us today. Most of all, uh, thank you to all of our listeners, and we don't often say this, but we should. Uh, we hope you're all staying safe, and we hope that everyone out there is is finding healing and community in this difficult moment. We all we all need it, and uh, maybe our podcast can help provide just a little bit of that community as well. And as Fraser Crane would say, "Good day and good mental health." <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.